Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. In this edition of Communication Mixdown, we're looking at the introduction and the diffusion of new media into the cultural landscape. I'm John Langer. The history of communication technologies is littered with visions of negative media effects, unknowable powerful forces unleashed and coming to disrupt the world as we know it and drag us all under. If you scroll back through these early days of television, comic books, movies, radio, even novels, the question of unmanageable and negative impact is always hovering in the background. Greg Wadley is a lecturer in the School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne, and he's been thinking about the way that the use of new communication technologies like social media and video games are being equated to the use of addictive drugs. I spoke to Greg Wadley earlier this week. Well, Greg, thanks so much for being with Communication Mixed Down today, and uh, I want to start by really just talking about lots of the public discussion that we hear around social media and video games. And often that discussion, very simplistically, and I have to say I think it's fairly simplistic as well, is that they tend to equate social media and video games to drugs. That is, people, especially young people, end up becoming addicted. Now, your view is that that's a very problematic description. Why? It's interesting because I I think that that statement is simultaneously right and wrong. Here's why. What we do know is that people use a range of technologies and especially media technologies to influence their own mood. Uh, That includes social media and video games. It also includes recorded music. It's been known for many years now that people use television and cinema and recorded music and these kind of what we now call old media Uh, as mood-influencing tools, perhaps unconsciously. And so my argument is that in that respect, these technologies are like drugs. The the statement that that social media is like a drug or video games is like a drug is, I would argue, true in that fairly technical sense that, that they can be used to influence the mood of the user. However, there's this kind of popular view of that equates the word drug with the word addiction. And, and so the, the word drug has a lot of social and, and political and, and legal associations with it that aren't actually inherent in, in, the, in, in, the, in the real definition of what a drug is. So most of us, for example, are drug users. Most humans use drugs every day. 
but they're using drugs that are not illegal, that don't damage their health very much. So caffeine is a drug that's extremely widely used. Um, alcohol is very widely used. So people having a, a glass of wine after work to, to, to de-stress, that's drug use. Uh, people drinking alcohol when they're socialising or drinking coffee in the morning to kind of get themselves wired up a bit and get in the mood for work, that's all drug use. Mm. But mm. most people would not see that as, as necessarily an addiction. You know, if you're just having a glass of mm. wine after work, that's, that's not a drug addiction in any kind of meaningful sense. You've done some work on um, the history and social context of drug use, and I think this relates to exactly what what you're talking about. Your approach is that you've described it, and I think you've used this term already, mood-regulating artifacts. You've called the drugs something like mood-regulating artifacts. What are you getting at here? That, that's a term that that I've invented, but it's heavily based on on some work that's been done in within pharmacology, which which is a study of drugs which is where some, uh, some, some authors have, have been making the point that the, the, the discipline of pharmacology has become very focused on, on harmful addiction. This, this is the point I was making before. Yeah? And yet most of us are drug users, and we don't really have a good framework for thinking about mundane drug use, ordinary drug use. And so there's this idea emerging in pharmacology that we can think of drugs as tools for changing mental state. So you can think of the average person, just an, an, uh, all of us, you know, as we, we, we grow up in a particular social context, in a particular society, at a particular historical era. And as we grow up, we learn to use the drugs that are generally uh, the ones that are socially acceptable and available in whatever society we grow up in. And when I say we learn to use them, we learn to understand the kinds of mood effects that they can bring about and the kind of context where they can be useful. So if you look at the, a typical kind of Western society in, in our era, uh, people learn that caffeine can have certain effects and it can be useful when you're trying to wake up in the morning or to stay focused on a task or when you're socialising. And people learn that alcohol or tobacco and various other commonly available legal drugs can be used to achieve certain mood states in certain contexts. And this is actually a very utilitarian rather than a, rather than a, um, a hedonistic view of, of drug use. We should be seeing that kind of ordinary mundane drug use as the use of a toolkit, tools for changing moods. We should use that, that same kind of logic when we think about some of these emerging technologies that also can change mood. And therefore, I, I've, I've, I've said, let's think about artifacts. So, any, so artifacts can be anything that we make, and, and that, that category includes drugs, it includes some of these emerging technologies, it includes old media like television, recorded music, and so on. Just give us a few examples of how, how you would be discussing these things in terms of artifacts and mood regulation or mood alteration, where would you be looking and give us, I guess, just to sort of illustrate what you're trying to talk about? There's this idea of a technology break in workplaces. This is something new in the world, you know, that didn't, didn't really happen 10 years ago. So when people need a break, you know, they've, they've been working on something, they're stressed and they're bored and they're tired and they need to take a break. It used to be that you might 
go to the kitchen and perhaps have a cup of tea. And now there's this idea of the technology break. So they might glance at Facebook um, or play a, a game on their phone or perhaps on their computer. There's also, um, at the same time, research on, on video game use. So there's a great study done by Anna Cox and colleagues at University College London showing that people are coming home from work and instead of having a beer or a wine, they're playing video games and they might play, play uh, Call of Duty for 30 minutes or 60 minutes after they get home from work. And that's, that's allowing them to recover from work, this idea of sort of emotional recovery from, from the work day. Are, are there other examples of uh, work that's been done in this area, or you, you must be following this very, very closely? Yeah, the, the, there's some great examples. There's a really amazing paper, quite, quite recent, um, on cat videos. So someone's done the study. It's a great study where they've they've shown that that watching cat videos has an effect on on your mood, and is used for that reason. So when someone's feels the need to, to lift their mood, to, be, to get into a more positive mood, that's one of the things they can do. It's true of, of casual games on phones. So games like Candy Crush are used by people to, to, to de-stress. You know, just, just, it's almost like a mindfulness exercise. Very interesting. So when we're w- watching cat videos, or we see people watching cat videos, we shouldn't be so sniffy about it. So you can, you, you can see, I think, that when you see how many different contemporary and emerging technologies have this purpose, have, have this use, I shouldn't say purpose because it may not be people's conscious purpose in using them, but they have this kind of side effect, an important side effect, and people are, people are exploiting this side effect. They're using it to, to adapt their moods to situations that they're in. They're, therefore, we, it's... It's wrong to see that as addiction. I don't think it's helpful to look at that mm-hmm. as addiction. And yet it is related to mood. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, it is, it is like using a drug in, in that sense. And perhaps a better alternative, perhaps a healthier alternative. You have been talking about changing mood, but you're also suggesting that these things could be used in therapeutic contexts as well. For Some apps, for example, help to manage anxiety. Can you talk about this? Yeah, this is a pretty big field now. So I'm involved in in uh, projects where we design and evaluate technologies for mental health, and there are plenty of other people uh, around the world working in this area. There's quite a lot of work being done in Australia. Actually, I think Australia is really at the forefront here. So th- these are, these are typically um, uh, web applications or smartphone applications that have a therapeutic purpose, and that's that's not restricted to mood change. You know, mental health is about more than, than merely mood, but mood can be wrapped up in that. Virtual reality is also used in this area, and, I, and I'm involved in a, a project where we're, we're building virtual reality apps for use at mental health clinics. Give us an example of how, how this would actually work. Do, do, do people who feel anxious or are in these sort of anxiety states, do they sort of you look at the technology or how, how do they actually work yeah it's um it's exposure therapy and exposure therapy is is older than vr and the idea of exposure therapy is that you, you expose the patient in a in a careful controlled way and repeatedly to the source of their anxiety and and thereby the patient becomes habituated to it 
and their emotional response to it is diminished. Mm. So that's a fairly old idea. But what virtual reality is doing is, is allowing that to, to really expand because in, in virtual reality you can recreate the, the physical environment in which that person is becoming anxious. Mm. So we're seeing uh, uh, VR used to treat ar- arachnophobia, so you know, ir- irrational fear of spiders, uh, likewise for heights, mm. uh, social anxiety, for post-traumatic stress disorder in uh, military veterans. So you, you can recreate in, in a virtual environment a simulation of, of, of a problematic physical environment that is similar enough, you know, perceptually similar enough that, that you can recreate that emotional state. And yet the person knows that they're not really in that mm. environment, that they know that mm. they're mm. safe. Interesting the way you're talking about this stuff. Do you see this as... Or is it actually now at the point where it's become domesticated? Or is 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 it possible to spread this sort of stuff? Because we are talking about, I guess, a, a really kind of new sort of development. Do you see it moving to the point where it can be adapted to sort of everyday domestic situations? That's a really great question. <laughs> because you're absolutely right. You know, the, the great thing about the smartphone is that it means that this this sort of clinical technology is is at the point where you can deliver it anywhere at any time and the same thing's happening with with virtual reality so as of about a year or two ago there there's a range of affordable high quality virtual reality platforms that that, that these are within the grasp of many people now and so we're at we're at the point where what has been happening in clinics for some time can potentially potentially be done in people's homes. Well, that was a pretty wide-ranging interview, starting with the internet addiction, and we ended up with talking about virtual reality apps. Lots to think about, and that was Greg Wadley. He works in the School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne, and we'll put a link to some of his work on this week's Communication Mixdown podcast. you got to remember, Nanoc's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me. For my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcast. Happy Nadoc! We're talking about the introduction and diffusion of new communication media into the cultural landscape. Is there a parent out there who hasn't at one time or other been wondering if their kids playing computer games are doing so? And is this such such a good thing? Possibly, dare I say it, even potentially addictive. Dr. Sue Walker is a professor in the School of Early Childhood and Inclusive Education at the Queensland University of Technology, and she's been involved in some research that's been investigating children's engagement with electronic gaming. 
Hello, Sue. Hello, John. How how are you? Good, good. Now, electronic games, and that that includes computer and digital games that you've been looking at. They're hugely popular with kids in Australia. Give us some of the impressive statistics about how much, uh, well, diffusion there is of these games into families. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, probably at least nine out of ten households in Australia will have electronic games, and um, so we're talking about the majority of homes with children have them. And um, at least sixty-five um, percent of households have three or more game devices. So those might be iPads, laptops, um, PCs, etc. So they're certainly ubiquitous in Australian homes. Now, your research is described as a longitudinal study. Briefly outline what your research is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we use um, data from the Longitudinal Study of Australian Children. This is um, a, a large nationally representative data set of Australian children. Uh, we use data from when children were um, eight to nine years of age and looked at their use of digital electronic games um, at eight to nine years of age and then two years later looked at their teacher-rated outcomes um, in the classroom around their social-emotional competence, um, their ability to regulate their behaviour, stay on task, pay attention, and also their um, language literacy and, and mathematical outcomes. Now, there's an old gag, I'm sure you've heard it, about good news and bad news. And as I understand it, your research findings seem to have the same kind of tagline. There's good news and bad news. Absolutely, that's right. So um, what we found was that children who engaged in moderate gaming, so um, we're talking here two to four hours per week of gaming, they actually did better on language and literacy and mathematical thinking as rated by their teachers, than those children who played games minimally or not at all, which is really interesting. Um, so, is it, is it, sorry, you're, yeah. So you're saying that uh, the kids that played games moderately actually did better than kids that didn't play games at all. That's exactly right. Yes, yes. Um, of course, the caveat is that there's a lot more going on there. Um, so obviously those children who are playing games moderately might be in a household which promotes certain types of behaviours and engagement in certain types of things. So we, we can't speak to that, but, but simply looking at the statistics, yes, those mm-hmm. children who engaged in gaming moderately did better. And, and uh, the bad news is that if they go further than moderation and indulge a lot, uh, there's, there's issues that you've discovered there as well. That's right, exactly. So um, if children are using electronic games for more than an hour a day, so that's um, quite a lot, more than an hour a day, pardon me, they're um, being rated by their teachers as being less able to pay attention in class, less able to regulate their behaviour, so um, there's less task persistence, less attentiveness, less learning independence. Mm -hmm. And they're also showing a degree of increase in emotional difficulties. So those are things such as um, Mm. often seems worried, excuse me, often being unhappy or tearful. Um, So those Mm. sorts of, um, I I guess, emotional, less competent behaviours. What did you think about that finding? Yes, well, I mean, it's the... um, 
attentiveness, task persistence, etc., the self-regulatory type of behaviour is probably quite intuitive. Um, so I, I, I guess we're, we're all very aware of the fact that these days when we're engaging with electronic devices um, on a frequent basis, our attention span is, is sitting from this to that and the other and we all try to multitask. It's not a good thing. Mm. Um, with respect to the emotional difficulties, I'd say, I mean, we're not talking causation here at all. So mm-hmm. it's an association and it might well be that children who... Um, for example, are less engaged with peers, are um, feeling some emotional symptoms or emotional difficulties, are then going to gaming mm, as, mm, as a way mm. of engaging themselves separately apart from socially. So it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, we're not talking causation at all and, and you know, yes. it could be uh, absolutely the other way around. No, I, absolutely. And uh, I think it's, it's, it obviously is a very complex uh, kind of uh, dynamic that you're addressing. And clearly there are factors involved external to the actual game playing itself. One of the things that you make a point of very clearly is and I think this is what you're getting at, is that the relationship between the use of electronic games and children's academic and developmental outcomes is complex, and it's multi-layered. And something that you've suggested is that the kind of game and the type of interaction during the game is an important factor. Could you explain a little bit about this? You talk about something called sandbox games. Yes, yes. So um, that's that's exactly right. So, so there are some kinds of games which actually specifically engage children in um, collaboration. So um, they, they need to be collaborative. They need to um, engage in social interaction while they're playing these games. And, and Minecraft is a, a very good example of what you might call a sandbox game. So these kinds of games... Um, probably have a very, very different relationship with children's outcomes than perhaps other kinds of games. And because we were analysing data from um, the Longitudinal Study of Australian Children, we were limited very much to the kind of data that were available there, which was simply um, the amount of time children Mm. spent playing games. And Mm. there was no information about the kind of games they were playing. So I think there Mm. really needs to be... um, we, we need to look very much more specifically at children's electronic gaming activities <clears throat> excuse me, and the kinds of social interactions, who's playing with them, um, what kind of games are being um, accessed and what kind of interactions are occurring within the games. You know, what, what do those games promote? You've actually led me to my very last question, which is if you did have a chance to do some more research in this area, ideally where would you put your focus? I think um, on observational work. So um, really observations in the home of children's electronic gaming in context, in situ, and looking at the the whole context of of parental monitoring, parental Mm. engagement. Are they playing with peers? Are they playing with their siblings? What kind of interactions are occurring? And doing that really quite fine-grained observational analysis. I think that's what's needed to kind of tease out um, a little bit more what's going on in this relationship. I want to thank you so much for being on Communication Mixdown and wish you all the best with your research. Thank you very much, John. That was Sue Walker. She's a professor of in the School of Early Childhood and Inclusive Education at Queensland University of Technology. And as you heard, she's investigating children's engagement with electronic gaming.
Well, that's it for Communication Mixdown this week. We'll be talking again next Thursday.